My name is James, and I'm one of the pastors here. If you're here just for the first time or, or joining us online, and what a joy it is to have you guys here today on this most amazing day of celebrating the, the resurrection of Christ our King. Um, we are so grateful you could join us today, especially if this church isn't your usual home. Thank you for, for checking it out. Thank you for, for coming by. Um, and if you're someone who doesn't normally go to church, we recognize it's a big deal to, to step out into these waters and to get back into the community. Uh, even if it was just to appease a relative or because you were forced to be here and you actually don't want to be here, or if it's because you, know, you just grew up going to church and even though you've given up on Jesus a long time ago, it's just what you do. And so you still keep coming and we appreciate you making the time. But I understand for some it can be an uncomfortable process and for others maybe there's been some wounding in the past since we know it's, it's a big deal. Uh, many Christians have been wounded even by other Christians or by other churches or even by other pastors. And so it can be a, a difficult time to step into a building like this with other believers. And we just are so grateful that you could be here. And if you're here today and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, an even more hearty welcome to you. It's a beautiful thing to gather together with people who are seeking to, to, to get to know Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus right now as your Lord and Savior, we are especially grateful you could join us. Here at Northview, our real goal is to actually live in love like Jesus. That's what we're all about, to pattern our lives after the life of Jesus, to seek to increasingly live the way that Jesus lived and to love others the way that he loved us. And so many Christians today are actually walking away from their faith for various reasons and often because of the failure of other Christians to actually, who call themselves followers of Jesus, to actually live in love like Jesus. There's a great quote from uh, the old Indian Hindu guru Mahatma Gandhi when he was quoted as telling another Christian saying you know I like your Christ but your Christians I don't like because your Christians are nothing like your Christ right and that's the view of a lot of people today we've been going through the letter of Ephesians the last number of months as a church and basically Paul has kind of one message over and over and over again he keeps giving and that is live and love like Jesus that's what we are called to do and he says it in countless different ways and different times and it's the same command that Jesus himself gave on the night that he was led away to be, be, be tortured and crucified. He told his disciples at the time, and he, as he was praying for them, one of the, the final things he prayed wasn't just for his disciples, it was actually for all of us today, and he prays this in John 17, he says this, so now I'm, or sorry, <clears throat> now I'm giving you a new commandment, love each other just as I have loved you, you should now love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. This is what Jesus said would define the life of a Christian, that they would be loving one another. He said this is what the followers of Jesus, by their very nature, should be increasingly becoming like Jesus. You know, and a few weeks ago, we were looking at Jesus' letter to the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. And in that letter that he writes to the church of Ephesus, Jesus basically says, you know, it doesn't matter what your doctrine is, or, or how, it doesn't matter how good your doctrine is. If you don't actually love one another... And love God in the same way. He says, your church shouldn't even exist, and I'm going to take it away from you. So every week here at Northview, as we go through the Bible, we, we look at a different angle of what it looks like to actually become more like Christ. We look at a different angle of what does it look like to actually become more like Jesus, to live and love more like Him. We want to love others the same way that Jesus loves us. That's what we're about. We want to increasingly experience His life and His love to such a degree that we reflect Jesus to the world. So that when the world sees us, they get a really good idea of what Jesus looks like. Amen? 
That's why we gather, to fellowship together and to celebrate Jesus together and to grow together and becoming more like him. And, and there's no better day than Easter Sunday where his love is made more visible than at any other point as we celebrate his death and his resurrection as we come together as a body. And so this morning, I want to really zero in on one specific event that happens at the crucifixion of Jesus. And it's something that has massive significance for all of us today of a miracle that was done. And it was it's recorded in each of the, of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke. And Jesus is standing not too far away as he's crucified or as he's on the cross for the giant temple in Jerusalem. And the Gospel of Mark records the story like this in Mark 15, 22. He says, And they brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then the soldiers nailed him to the cross and they divided his clothes and threw dice to decide who would get each piece. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. A sign announced the charge against him. It read, the king of the Jews. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Ha, look at, your new, look at you now, they said. They yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well, then save yourself and come down from that cross. The leading priests and teachers of religious law also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross so we can see it and believe him. Even the men who were crucified with Jesus ridiculed him. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. And then at three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Elahi, Elahi, Lema Shevaktani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And then Jesus uttered another loud cry, and he breathed his last. Verse 38, and then the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. And when the Roman officer stood facing him, saw how he died, he exclaimed, this man was truly the Son of God. Let's pray. Jesus, open up these words to us, Lord. Move within our hearts right now. Draw us deeper into your word deeper into your presence. Call us home, Jesus. So Mark shares how Jesus was crucified. People were, were mocking him. And prior to this, he was horrifically whipped almost to death. A crown of thorns was placed upon his head, and they nailed Jesus to the cross in the morning around 9 a.m. And for six hours, he hung on the cross in agony, and people continued to mock him. Around noon, the sky, tur noon, the sky turns black, and the full, sate, the full weight of the sin of the world was upon Jesus' shoulders, and he was in physical agony. But even more agony he was in because of receiving the judgment of all the sin of the world that was upon his shoulders. 2 Corinthians puts it this way, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. And so all the weight of our sin was upon him. And at three o'clock, after six hours of compounding agony, Jesus breathes his last breath and he cries out. And he quotes Psalm 22, which is this old psalm back in the Old Testament written by David saying, God, why have you forsaken me? He quotes verse 1, which is really the entire thing is drawing attention to the agony and the, and the despair that David felt as he's writing that psalm. With that weight of sin upon him, Mark tells us that in verse 7, Jesus says, He uttered another loud cry, breathed his last. As the weight of the sin comes upon him, and he breaks the power of sin, he sacrifices his life for us. And right at that moment, 
At the very moment that he breathes his last breath, this miracle occurs, and it's described in verse 38. And the curtain of the sanctuary was, of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And this is incredible because it signifies the, the purpose, the greatest purpose of, of why Jesus actually came to earth. The curtain, or, or the veil as it's sometimes called, in the temple of Jerusalem is torn from the top to the bottom. And it's, it's completely removed... <laughs> it's completely torn from the top to the bottom. And this is of massive importance because of all the significance of what this means. And I want to jump into this a bit. If you were here on Good Friday, you would have heard Esther share on this very beautifully. But for those that aren't familiar with it, there's so much context to this curtain and this veil. The curtain was inside of the temple of Jerusalem. And the temple was the holiest site in the world for Jews at that time. It's where God's presence dwelled here on earth. And it goes back thousands of years to when the Jews were freed from slavery to Egypt. They were in the desert, and God had them build a portable temple, and they called it a tabernacle. And this is where they would make sacrifices for their sins. It was broken into a few sections. So here's a photo of what it looked like at that time to some degree. And people would bring their animals that they were bringing to sacrifice for the sake of their sins, and they'd wait their turn. And the priest would sacrifice it on the altar, and they would make payment for their sin. And as penalty for sin is death. And then within the tabernacle that was very special, only priests could go within it. And first, this main room here was called the holy place. And within that was the menorah, was the table of showbread, the altar of incense. These were all places that were completely holy, that only the priests who had been properly ritually cleansed could even be allowed into this place. But then behind a massive curtain there, with this tightly woven curtain that was four inches thick, and was the holy of holies. And, and within the holy of holies, that's where Indiana Jones's lost ark was located right before it was lost and then raided. But uh, this is where God's presence dwelt. The very presence of God that dwelled in this place. And only the high priest once a year on the day of atonement was allowed within. So that was the first tabernacle of God that built in the desert. And then a much larger one was built during the time of King Solomon. Eventually that was destroyed by the Babylonians. And then they came back and they built another one, which was eventually rebuilt by the great King Herod in this massive temple. And this one was huge. This temple of Herod was surrounded by this huge courtyard. And this huge court that was just absolutely massive. And, and that was like the city center of Jerusalem. It's where all trade would happen. It's where the money changes were that Jesus was driving out. It's where anyone could go. It's where Jesus did so much of his teaching. It's where the churches would be under the colonnades there in the early church. It was just this huge city courtyard where people would gather. But there were many boundaries as you got closer into the temple. There was a giant wall that blocked out all non-Jews from entering the temple. And there were signs, in fact, on these outer walls that said, if any Gentile enters, they will be killed. And then there were 14 steps that led from that outer court up into this court of the women there. And in the court of the women, there was this large courtyard about the size of a modern-day football field. And now any Jew was allowed in here, but they had to be Jew. And it was called the court of the women because the next one was another 12 steps up from there. You went into what was called the court of Israel. And that was where only male Jews were allowed to enter now as you went into this inner level of the temple at this point. Now, surprisingly, nowhere in Scripture did it say that women shouldn't be allowed to go there, but they made their own rules at this point um, and decided on this. But then once you went to the court of Israel, it was another five steps up and in again to get to the court of the priests. And the court of the priests was only for the consecrated priests, the Levitical priesthood. And then go up even more steps, and you would get up into the temple proper. 
you would go through these doors that Josephus, the historian at the time who was there, said were 50 feet tall and 25 feet wide. And as you go into that door, you enter into what's called the holy place. And you see in front of you was the menorah that was lit up, was the incense and of altar of incense, was, was fresh bread. But what stood out to anyone, and only a priest was allowed in, would be the massive curtain in front of you. This curtain or this veil was 60 feet tall and 30 feet wide. For a sense of scale, here's a 60 foot tall flag on a building in New York. This is 60 feet by 30 feet. This is the size of that veil that was, that was hung in, in, that divided the holy place from the holy of holies. This massive, massive flag. But it wasn't, sorry, a curtain. It wasn't a flag though, or it wasn't like a shower curtain. This thing was, consider, was, was called as thick as a man's hand. So between four, six inches thick. The ancient historians tell us that it was made of the finest of wool and blue and scarlet and purple. And that it would take over 300 priests to take it down, clean it, and put it back up if it ever got defiled. This thing was massive. And then once a year, after a significant purifying process of sacrificing a bull for their own sin, and then sacrificing on behalf of the nation and, 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 and putting the sin into a scapegoat, only the chief priest, the, the holiest of all the holy priests, would be allowed to go behind the veil, to enter into the holy of holies. If there's any sin in his heart, he would drop dead because it was so holy. But for a brief period of time, this one man, the holiest man in all the land, had on this one day, the holiest of all days, had access to the presence of God. And it would never end. Every year they would come back again and do it again and do it again and do it again. There was always this separation between man and God. For a couple thousand years this went on. And it was a clear reminder to the people that there must be a payment of sin and guilt. But this payment they made of sacrifices was only temporary. It would never, sorry, it kept being required again and again and again. God's presence was veiled to all but the most holy of the priests on all but the most holy of days. That is, until Jesus came. With the coming of Jesus, God dwelled with man again. Just like he did back in the garden, God became a man and dwelled with us. And not just with the high priest. In fact, the priesthood are the ones that rejected Jesus. Jesus hung out with prostitutes and the sick and the hurting, with farmers and fishermen, with tax collectors, with women and children, and not the chief priests, but he hung out with the chief of sinners. God came and revealed himself to us in Jesus. And not only did Jesus reveal God to us, not only did he show us the life that he intended for us to live, but Jesus became the ultimate sacrifice for all of our sins. Jesus, the Son of God, came to pay the ultimate price for our sin so we could be restored back into fellowship with God. Not a one-time sacrifice that would be repeated each year, but once and for all, when Jesus, the pure, sinless, spotless Son of God, willingly gave his life for us on the cross, he took upon himself the sin of all of mankind, and he made this eternal sacrifice. And right at that moment, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all, att Luke all attest that the veil in the temple, that 60 foot by 30 foot, four inch thick, that veil was torn from the top to the bottom, not from the bottom to the top, from the top to the bottom, where no man could possibly have done it. And in that moment, the Holy of Holies, the most holy place of God's presence was opened for all of humanity. Anyone that would turn to Him. No longer would sacrifices be required. No longer was perfection required because Jesus paid the ultimate price. 
He was the final, the perfect sacrifice, and the veil was torn. No longer was a relationship with God dependent upon the work of humanity, but now relationship with God was available to all because of the work of Jesus. No longer is access to God behind a veil at the back of a massive room where only a few had entry. No longer are there steps to climb to reach to Him. No longer do you have to be holy enough to go through walls and courts and, and inner sanctuaries. No longer is there separation between men and women, between Jew and Gentile, or even priest or prostitute. In that moment, the walls that separated God from men and women were done away with. No longer would there be anything that separates. And then a couple days later, Jesus rose from the dead, breaking the power of death and paving the way for us to join him for all of eternity. Jesus paid the price for us. And now we have complete access to him, church. Hebrews chapter 10 puts it this way. Yeah, you can pray for God. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 10 says, in chapter 10 verse 10, he says, For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ, once for all time. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest, Jesus, offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sin, good for all time. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. God's desire is that we would be brought back into relationship with him through the sacrifice of Jesus. And that Jesus' sacrifice would be the final sacrifice needed. But then Hebrews continues in verse 19. It says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter into heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. We can enter into the holy of holies. Verse 20. By his death, Jesus opened up a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. He opened a way through the curtain by ripping it in half. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, that's Jesus, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. He says, let's go right into his presence. He has opened up a way. He has torn the veil. We can experience life with God the way that we were created to. He finishes, for our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. It's a reference to the blood that the priest would sprinkle upon the altar. All this to say that the veil is torn. Jesus has paid the price for our sin. We don't have to work to get to do to him anymore. He did all the work to get to us. And now we can dwell with God the way he intended it to be from the very beginning. Amen. This is God's longing for us. This is what we were created for. You know, so many people often ask, you know, what is the the purpose of humanity? Why do we exist? What's the meaning of life? And and Jesus brought the ultimate answer to that question. I want to tell the gospel story, the good news, and maybe it's slightly different than you've heard before, but before the Bible or the Bible tells that before the beginning of time, before there was an earth or a universe, or even before time existed, God existed. And not just as some nebulous idea, but God existed in loving community. In three persons, as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we, we call this the Trinity. 
And their relationship, the scripture tells us, was beautiful. It was full of joy. It it pulsated with a, a vibrant life that can be described like a dance of joining together. They were three in one in this beautiful interwoven dance of love and mutual affection and joy and life and delight with one another. Now, I'm using some of the language of Dr. Gary Moon here, who um, really stole a lot of that from uh, uh, Dallas Willard, but it comes out of his book called The Apprenticeship with Jesus, who I guess they all took it from, from Scripture anyway, so it doesn't matter. But at some point in eternity past, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit kind of were talking to each other before time existed. And they said, you know what, this, this fellowship of love and joy and life and delight that we have within ourselves, it's too good to keep for ourselves. And so God creates an entire universe, and he places humanity right at the center of it. And he creates Adam and Eve. And not only that, but God does something far more amazing than that. He creates them in his own image to be like him. And to experience his life and joy and love, and he plants within the human heart a small but a glorious piece of himself. And under God's watchful eyes, humanity is to grow, to become as much like God as possible. They are to join this dance with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, to become partners in relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and with one another. And that's why we exist today. God made humanity out of the overflow of His love to join with Him, to dance with Him, you could say, to be part of this loving communion that He experiences. He longed to take the love and the fellowship and the relationship that he experienced with himself and to pour it into creation, to exponentially multiply it beyond anything we could comprehend. And that's why we exist, to experience life with God and with one another. It's embedded within the heart of all of humanity, not just to believe a few truths or believe some doctrine, but to experience life with God. It's why we are here. And for a while, it was amazing and perfect in the garden. Adam and Eve enjoyed a beautiful fellowship with God. In the Garden of Eden, they they walked with Him and they talked with Him. And, And it was just the way God intended it for it to be for all of eternity. But then they made a, a terrible, terrible decision. They wanted to decide for themselves what was right and wrong, what was good and evil. They wanted to be their own gods, and so they turned away from God and turned towards themselves. But God was not surprised. He knew this day would come, the moment that he knit them together and when he gave them a free will. You see, you can't surprise a God who lives outside the boundaries of time. But their choice to walk away from him deeply saddened God. And it created a separation between humanity and God. And God then immediately sets into motion a series of plans to draw humanity back into relationship with Him. Never for a second did God ever give up, even for a second, on humanity and His desire for us to be reconciled back into relationship with Him. And He begins to pursue us and woo us and and calls us home. And He demonstrates to us all throughout the Old Testament, showing us His beauty and His character and His holiness and His great love for us. For multiple millennia, God was a prodigal father longing for his children to return home. He sends letters and prophets all with the same message saying, you are my children. Come home. Come to your father. 
Your inheritance is waiting. Come home. I want to teach you to dance with me, to be part of this life that I created you for. His children sometimes turned to him for short periods of time, but then kept turning away until finally God could wait no longer. And then 2,000 years ago, God emptied himself of divine dignity, and he sends Jesus to become one of us. And Jesus comes to earth, becoming just like us for a while, so that we can learn to be just like him for eternity. Jesus brings the good news that God's kingdom's doors are, are wide open, that his plans and desires for us haven't changed in any way, that he still wants us to join the dance with him, to be part of him, to become one with God the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and to become one with one another, to experience their life and the love both now and for all eternity. This is why he created us and his plans have not changed. In fact, that's Jesus' final prayer to us right before he is crucified. He prays for the disciples and he prays for, for all who will believe in the future. He goes, that's us. And he says in verse 20 of chapter 17, I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you, may they be in us. Jesus prays, may they, that's us, join in this dance of love and fellowship and life. That's his prayer for us so beautiful and it's so good and then the son of god then does the unthinkable he takes the weight of the sinfulness of mankind upon himself and he gives his life for us and he demonstrates through rising from the dead that he truly has power over life and death and that's not all he then sends his holy spirit to us to dwell with all who accept him and his Holy Spirit empowers us to actually walk with God, to learn how to live in fellowship with the God of the universe and, and life and joy and peace, to learn how to dance with the Trinity and with one another, to grow and taking that love that he pours into us and pouring it into the world around us. And then to invite other people to dance with us, to join us in this relationship while we wait for the ultimate eternal party to begin. This is why we celebrate Easter. It's why Jesus' death and resurrection are at the center of Christianity. In John 10.10, 10, Jesus describes it this way, of why he came. He says, Jesus came that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus came to restore our purpose in creation, to experience life with God and with one another, to experience the dance together. Not from a distance, God is not like some blimp floating out in the heavens, but in Christ, Jesus came near to us. And he tore away the curtain that separated us. He broke down the walls that divided us, and he rose from the dead and now empowers us by his spirit to live and love like he did. We were created to be with God, to experience his life and his love. And now through Christ, it's available to us again. Hebrews wrote it this way, he said, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. Let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts. Jesus has made the way behind the curtain to a life-giving relationship with God. So he says, let us go right into his presence. This is what Christianity is all about. 
And sadly, there, there are many Christians who've lost sight of this. And it, it might be some of you here today. For some, Christianity has become like a, a to-do list of just believing the right things or trying to avoid sin. And there are sadly so many really miserable Christians out there. Maybe it's some of us here today who are exhausted from trying too hard or aiming at the wrong target or disillusioned with unanswered prayers or just tired of other Christians. And there's so many that walked away. And there are many who are just trying to do the bare minimum requirements to just try and get to heaven as though that's the goal of life. That it's some kind of testing ground we're in right now and it's just about avoiding hell and getting to heaven. But that's not how Jesus describes the goal of life. The only time where Jesus defines the purpose of this real life, of eternal life, is found in John 17, 3. He says this, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see, the goal is not to avoid hell. The goal is not just to get into heaven when we die. The goal is to get God. The greatest gift God offers is not an eternal paradise in some other place, but the gift of himself. Fellowship with the God of the universe and to be part of his family. To be in his presence. To experience life with him right here and right now. That is what he offers us. And that's why we celebrate Easter, because Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and ascension, we can now experience life with God, the life that He created us for, and life with one another, right here and right now. Amen? And what better day than Resurrection Sunday than to begin to experience this life today? Whether you've grown up in a Christian home and have turned away, or whether you would consider yourself a Christian, but your faith is primarily in just trying to be good enough to get to heaven, or rather than experiencing the life He has for you, no matter how dry you are or broken, or if you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior, it doesn't make a difference. God's love for us is greater than we can ever begin to comprehend. From before the beginning of time, Jesus created us to be with us. He longs for us. And because of what he has done, there is no longer any separation between those whom God or those who accept Jesus as Lord. The veil is torn. This is what we were created for. So if you're not currently walking with Jesus, you're likely having even a, a pull in your heart now because it's what's written into our hearts from the beginning of creation. When Jesus took his sin upon him, our sin upon himself, he paid the price for our sin and depravity so we could experience his life and his love. And we could grow to become more like him. And so we must turn to him and acknowledge that like Adam and Eve, we make really terrible gods ourselves. We want to define for ourselves what is right and wrong and what is evil and good. And when we do, we make a terrible mess of it. And we hurt others and we hurt ourselves. It leads to pain and it leads to heartache. But we can turn from our sin. We can repent of our selfishness and say, Jesus, I want you to be Lord of my life. I want to come home. So no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, no matter how far you have fallen or how unworthy you may feel, Jesus' grace is more than enough. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may have mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Let us right now approach the throne of God's grace. The veil is torn. The way is open. 
Jesus sits with the Father, welcoming us home, welcoming us to life in Him. Today is Resurrection Sunday. The veil is torn. The way to Jesus is wide open. And Jesus is saying, come home. Begin again. Come to me. Let me resurrect your life. And so if you're here today and you do not currently follow Jesus, whether you did it one time or have walked away, listen to his still, small voice speaking to you right now. Tune in to the quickening of your heart. I know God is speaking to many of us right now. Calling us beyond the veil. Calling us to him. So let's pray. Jesus, we come before your throne of grace, Lord. Speak to our hearts right now, Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, speak right now, Lord. you feel the Spirit is speaking to you and that God is moving within your heart, I want you to pray with me right now. Say, Jesus, I want to experience your life. I've tried to live life on my own terms. I've hurt others and I've hurt myself. And I want to follow you, Jesus. Jesus, I know that I've sinned and I want to turn my life around. Help me, Lord. I want to come home. I need your grace. I need your love. I choose today to follow you, Jesus. I want to come home. Amen. Amen. If you've prayed that prayer, congratulations. Welcome to a new family of God. Welcome to this great, big, messy family that God has welcomed us all into. And if, and if that's you, we would love to speak with you. If you just prayed that prayer and it's something that, that is, is real for you today, we would love to contact. I'd love to pray with you during worship or afterwards. If, if not, fill out a card. We'd want to be able to get you a Bible or, or some discipleship materials to talk about. What are the next steps upon accepting Christ? If you've been a believer for a while, you're like, well, that doesn't apply to me. I already follow Jesus. Well, it applies just as much because there's so many of us who are dry. There's so many of us who are not living the reality of this. Again, maybe it's unanswered prayer. Maybe you, you, you've held on to it. And you're just kind of holding it astray and you don't really like being part of this Jesus stuff so much, but you still have a faith that exists, but it's not real in your life. That's not what God created us for. Maybe you're just holding on to your kind of get out of hell free card, that insurance card of fire insurance saying, well, at least I believe in Jesus. But that's not why he came. He didn't come just so people would enter heaven. He came so we could have life with him and experience it here and now, not just then. Eternal life has already begun. It's an eternal kind of life that he's called us to live in right now. And if you're in that place right now, I want you to just pray with me to Jesus this morning on Resurrection Sunday. And right now to say, Jesus, I want more of you. Jesus, on this Resurrection Sunday, resurrect my heart. Take these dry bones and, and breathe new life into them, Lord. I recognize that I've gotten too stuck in my head and I've, I've lived based upon my own understandings, Lord. And I've lost sight of the reality that you didn't just come to make me miserable. You didn't just come for me to do to-do lists or don't-do lists, but you came to give life and I'm not living in that right now. 
Maybe it's the hardness of our heart. Maybe it's sin. Maybe it's disillusionment. Maybe it's even other Christians. We see what's going on in the world around us. We're like, this is all garbage. But Jesus, we want you. Jesus, speak to our hearts right now. Draw us nearer to you. Behind the veil. We want to experience your life, Lord Jesus. We want to come home if we've been wandering. Jesus, you are so good. We want to live the life that you created us for. Thank you, Jesus, for in you is found life. Amen. Amen, amen. Jesus, thank you so much for the gift you give us of life with you. You came so that we may have life, Jesus. You died so that we would have life. You rose again to give us life, and you ascended so we can live that life with you, Jesus. So we celebrate you today, Lord, on this Resurrection Sunday, Father. We celebrate your gift of life to us to experience here and now. And Jesus, for those that are wrestling with that, speak your words of life over them. Draw them deeper behind the veil into your presence, Father. Resurrect the dry bones, Lord. And may we go from here experiencing great delight in you walking with you, enjoying you. Thank you, Lord Jesus.